So how has your week been? Good. First intro. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, everyone. My name is Gates. My name is Kelsey. And welcome to Killer Country. My week was good. I just, we just saw each other two days ago and it's kind of, I kind of love it though, because I like, I logged in to get everything pulled up for this recording and everything was still open because I hadn't even (laughs) closed it from (laughs) the last time we recorded. (laughs) No, it's great. Like, I mean, usually I feel like I don't do this much research in such a short amount of time, but it's kind of actually working for me ever since I started, you know, with this schedule, I feel like things are so much easier. And, um, I, excuse me, I'm going to start going to like a coffee shop or something once a week. So I can just like fully focus on this. All right. So you are taking us where we're in Massachusetts. And in case anybody forgot, (laughs) I just realized I have not, um, done the thing where I figure out how everything is pronounced. Oh, it's but just gonna be, we're just winging it. We're winging it wing- today. Like everything else is good, but we're winging the words. <laughs> It'll be fine. So I'm pretty sure I'm in Lowell, Massachusetts. Okay. L-O-W-E-L-L. Yeah. Lowell. Lowell. Yeah. I like it. I, I support it. Perfect. Let's go. <laughs> Where are you going to be at? I am in, technically in North Attleboro. Okay. So I'm an N. You are an N. So yes. it is... It's my turn once again. (laughs) And because I have been doing the super annoying things for you guys and giving you these um, unsolved cases, I have a solved case today. I love it. (laughs) So it's probably going to be one of those back and forth, back and forth type things, but I really hope you guys bear with me. So Lowell actually sounds like a super cute town. Um, it's known for its historic mills, and it's also known as the birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution. Oh. And circling back to what you talked about last week, Edgar Allan Poe, he actually spent some time in Lowell. Oh. And some people believe that he even wrote some of The Raven inside Lowell's oldest tavern called The Warden. Wow. Yeah. But... My favorite thing about this town and something that if we ever travel to Massachusetts, I need to check out. In 2016, they started the Lowell Kinetic Sculpture Race. So (laughs) the goal of this race is to inspire engineers and visionaries by promoting the STEM fields, the arts and physical activity. That's cool. So what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to create a human-powered art sculpture that can traverse road, sand, mud, and water. What? (laughs) Yes. That's cool. It sounds so awesome. They also have a cute area called Mill Number 5, which sounds a lot like our low mill, where they have a ton of different local shops inside of it and sell market market produce and local goods. It's a great hidden gem that they say uh, turns into a frequent stop for shopping and entertainment. I love that. That's my favorite thing to do on vacation. My husband hates it. (laughs) Well, we we can go on vacation together and take our husbands and they can just be party poopers and like do their own thing. Yeah. And it's so unfortunate because I love like if we're on vacation, I want to do something like I want to go find an old fort or like historic tours. And he hates historic tours. He's like, 
he does them because he loves me and he's a good husband, but (laughs) he does not enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, Nick actually, so he's more of a history nerd than I am. And whenever we went to Europe, he was dragging me around every single place, wanting to do every single thing, take all of the tours. I'm with Nick. (laughs) Yeah. And I was going to say, not that I'm complaining because we had so much fun. I just hurt my knee on the flight. Oh no. And it was not the same. We were walking easily 10 miles a day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course we walked to the top of the Notre Dame, like the top top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we walked to the top of, um, I can't even remember the name. Uh, we went to the Eiffel Tower, did that mm-hmm. every place. We walked the entirety of Pompeii, which is, oh my God. I don't even know how big, <laughs> like it's huge. And then after that, we walked the Herculaneum. And then after Jeez. that, we walked to the National Museum um, in Naples. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Uh, Matt's very much a lay on the beach type of vacationer. He's like, mm, I don't want to do anything on vacation. <laughs> we want to do everything is our problem. <laughs> now, in 1997, the population in Lowell was around 104,304 people. And I just averaged it out between 95 and 2000 just because, you know, they don't really do census on weird years. Mm-hmm. And the current population of Lowell, based on the U.S. Census estimate, is approximately 109,902 people. So we've seen a little bit of a bump in more recent years. So we are going to be talking about a man named Peter Contos today. So he grew up in a rural suburb of Lowell called Westford, and it's near the New Hampshire state line. Sources say that he had a troubled childhood, but I searched and searched and searched and could not find what troubled childhood they were talking about that he just so happened to have. Mm -hmm. For his high school career, he was a member of the ski team, which, awesome. (laughs) And he also worked for the audiovisual department before he graduated in 1984. The school librarian had said that he's a very nice boy and he was very respectful and helpful. And in a lot of high schools, um, I know mine was like this, seniors are able to put quotes next to their pictures. Mm -hmm. And in his, he had a big, long paragraph. But in it, he had written that he will always remember the good times and parties with good friends. Oh, just a good, wholesome guy. Totally. And this good, wholesome guy just so happened to live three different lives. Oh. And I would love (laughs) to tell you about all of them. (laughs) So in his first life, Peter was an accomplished and respected serviceman with a young wife and a promising military career. So about two years after he graduated high school in May 1986, Peter enlisted in the Air Force. And a few years later in June 1990, so after he served his four years, he decided to no longer be active and he became a member of the Air National Guard's 102nd Fighter Wing. He was called up to serve during the Persian Gulf War. Now, since he was in the Air National Guard, he was a part-time technical sergeant, and he would only work one weekend a month. And this is very common in the Guard. During his time in the Guard, his duties would range from traffic business to ID card issuance, and even to guard the flight line. The commander of the 102nd Fighter Wing said of Peter that he has always been quite professional, which is one thing that contributes to the shock and disbelief here. I found him to have a high degree of military bearing. He always gave 110%. Because of his good military record, Peter was was also chosen to be an instructor in the professional military curriculum for enlisted personnel. And this job is not just given to anyone. Like, it is an honor. This course dealt with professionalism, military customs, 
the uniform and written and speaking skills. He was described as a spit and polished, spit and polished, straight arrow military man with a distinguished record, including two Air Force Commendation Medals and the Air Force Achievement Medal. Now, I spoke to my Air Force specialist, aka my (laughs) husband, and he said that the Air Force Commendation Medals are fairly easy to get. Um, One of his that he had gotten, he just went to a 30-day training in the desert. And oh. it was a few years ago. And everyone that went received a commendation medal. Okay. Least, so it's like, it's more like a training certificate almost. Basically. Yeah. <clears throat> From my understanding, of course, disclaimer, I have never served in the military. <laughs> Neither they said I. that I couldn't because I had too many tattoos. Which is <laughs> That's stupid. not a rule anymore. That's changed. Well, I'm pregnant now. Sorry. Oh, yeah, not <laughs> purple, like, mm, purple hair and pregnancy. Time's mm, up. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so during this time, um, in 1992, he met a woman named Robin, and he fell head over heels in love with her. Two years after meeting Robin, they moved in together. And after the couple was together for four years, they got married in August of 1996. After they married, he actually moved, or both of them moved into her parents' house uh, in a town called Stoneham. Stoneham? S-T-O-N-E-H-A-M. Stoneham. I would, I would think Stoneham. And he also, during this time, we found out that he wanted to be a state trooper. And Peter told his wife, because of his Air Force duties, he wouldn't be home often. And just like we discussed earlier, the truth at the time was that he was no longer in the Air Force full time. He was in the reserves. I was going to say, I feel like this is his bridge into life number three. Uh, into life number two. Oh, number two. <laughs> yes. So in a community about 15 miles away from his first life, he lived his second life. This one was where he was known as a nice small town boy that grew up to have two young boys with a woman named Catherine Rice, where he was dating but never married. But he's Cat- still married to this other woman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just making sure I'm following. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, just wait. Just wait. Okay. So uh, a little bit about Catherine. She graduated from Needham High School in 1980 and then graduated from Framingham State College in 1984. So Catherine met Peter in 1992, which, spoiler alert, was the same year that he met his wife, Robin, (laughs) while he was working as a SEER security guard. And she was working for a tax preparation agency at the time. Soon after meeting, they began to have a sexual relationship. And that next year, in June of 1993, they had their first son, Benjamin. Now, I want to raise my son like this. But Benjamin was described as an outgoing, enthusiastic child that loved superheroes. And he loved to pretend that he was Batman. And uh, his grandfather was Dr. Cecil Rice. He was a noted psychotherapist in the area. And he would often care for Benjamin and who would sooner or who would later become his brother, Ryan. When Dr. Rice would take Benjamin out on walks around the woods, the two of them would pick out trees that looked like snakes or dinosaurs. Aww. Super cute. So cute. Like my (laughs) uh, baby theme is dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And it just, I was like, I've got to do this with my son. (laughs) And kind of to pull both of his lives together, Two months after he married his wife, Robin, 
Catherine became pregnant by her boyfriend, Peter. So he had just gotten married to his wife Mm -hmm. and then he goes and knocks up his, I hate that people called her a mistress. Like she was in a full on relationship with this man. It wasn't like a fling. Exactly. And I had seen in one source that they were even engaged. So it was just one source that I had seen that they were engaged in. And so that's why I was saying like girlfriend, boyfriend, because that was just one source out of the so many that I had read through. Yeah. That's not a mistress. Yeah, that's not a mistress. Like, a mistress knows, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Catherine was obviously so excited at this time because Peter had told her that they would get a house together in the south of Boston. And the strange thing was that they had, that she had kind of noticed is that as their relationship grew and time had passed, Peter refused to meet her parents. Her, Her parents described him as a shadowy figure that was occasionally mentioned by their grandson, Benjamin. And of course, you know, they thought it was strange that they hadn't met the father of their daughter's children, but I mean, they trusted Catherine's judgment. She's an adult. Like, what can you do? She has a good head on her. And she told her parents that they could meet Peter whenever uh, she gave birth to her second child, Ryan, because he said that he was going to be there for their second child's birth. At And it was at this time that Catherine expected Peter to be around more because not only was she pregnant with their second son, but they were also, you know, talking about buying that house together in South Boston. Mm -hmm. Catherine went into labor two weeks early on July 21st and Peter never showed, which not surprising. Excuse me? Yeah. He did not show for the birth of his second son. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. With her, his her first, so in, as far as she knows, his first son. Oh, he knows that Benjamin is his. Right. No, cool. but I'm saying to to her, to Catherine. Say it again. What's the second what second girl's name? Uh, Robin. Robin. So Robin's having their first child together. No, this is Catherine. This is Catherine. Yeah, two weeks after Robin and Peter got married, Catherine became pregnant with Peter's child. Peter's first child. Peter's second child. Because he has one with Robin. No, he's never had one with Robin. Where's this other kid coming from? Okay, so um, (laughs) Benjamin, or not Benjamin, Peter and um, Catherine met in 92. Yep. She, that next year after they met, she had given birth to his first son. Okay, so she so got pregnant like shortly same... after they met. Okay, I'm following now. Okay. okay. For some reason, I had it in my head that he had a kid with Robin, and now he was having another one with Catherine. Okay, I'm on the same page now. Okay, perfect. Because <laughs> things were about to get very confusing for you. Okay. <laughs> and um, so Peter was never there. But the thing is, like, she had a very good support system in her parents. Like, they had that old-fashioned dynamic to where the parents were involved with the daughter who was involved with her children. So it was all kind of together. Well, that's good. And after Catherine gave birth to Ryan, she would occasionally take the boys to Otis Air Force Base several times to see Peter. This is where he worked. Mm -hmm. He says full-time, but we all know that it was part-time. And the thing is, this uh, base was about 75-mile drive from where they lived to Cape Cod, where he was stationed. And, you know, Peter told his girlfriend, 
because of his Air Force duties, he wouldn't be home often. And that's why she wouldn't see him often. And the truth at the time was that he was no longer in the Air Force full time. Like we said earlier, Mm -hmm. he was in the reserves. At the time of this case, she was working at a Boston security firm. And her son, Benjamin, was four years old. And their son, Ryan, was two months old. This leads us to his third life. So in his third life, I'm just going to lay it all out for you guys. <laughs> he was a cold-blooded killer who not only murdered the mother of his two children, but also he killed his children, stuffed their what? little bodies in a backpack that he took to work and stuffed in his locker at the Otis Air Base in Bourne. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was not expecting that at no. all. Yeah. And they say that Peter just started to feel the pressure of leading a double life, and he was willing to do whatever it took not to get caught. Holy shit. Yeah. Do we just need to take a second to process that? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I I was looking for a case to do, and I mean, I came across this one, and I was like, you know, this doesn't sound too horrible. Maybe it could be like a little bit lighter. And then I read all of this and I was like oh my gosh it's too late I'm already four pages in (laughs) it's too late yeah it was too late unfortunately I'm so sorry guys now on September 27th 1997 a woman who was not only Catherine's upstairs neighbor she was also her landlord and her friend her name was Irene Fenneral she called Catherine's her name is Catherine Um, On September 27, 1997, a woman who was not only Catherine's upstairs neighbor, she was also her landlord and friend. Her name was Irene Fenneral. She called Catherine's parents because she became concerned that she hadn't heard any noise from Catherine or her boys, even though her car was there. And I mean, as most of you guys know, anyone that has kids, four-year-olds and two-months-old are not quiet. Right. Like, (laughs) at all. Especially if they're living in an apartment, like you hear everything. Exactly. And with a single parent, like maybe things might get a little out of control sometimes. Yeah. So um, after she got off the phone with Catherine's parents, she took her son and they both went into Catherine's apartment and that's where they found her body. So she was found nude, beaten, and strangled to death in her bathtub with only a few inches of water in it. And the police say that it looks like it looked like someone tried to stage it as a suicide, but because she was beaten so badly and all the blunt force trauma, yeah, they were like, "There's, there's no you way you can't that this stage is a blunt force trauma to look like an accident." Exactly, and it was at this time that they noticed that the boys weren't there; her sons were missing. The Lowell police contacted Otis Air Base, Air Force Base, in an effort to locate Peter and to let him know that his wife. Mm-hmm. air bunnies around that was dead and that his sons benjamin and ryan were missing obviously the airmen at the base were confused because they were all under the impression that peter and his wife had just gotten married and they didn't have any children yet because they only know about robin exactly oh god now it, because the police had called the air base like Obviously, they called Peter, the airman Mm -hmm. called Peter at his house, and they told him about the call that they had gotten from the police department. 
So Peter turned around and he called the Lowell Police Department. And later, a police officer was accompanied by a state trooper, and they drove to the home that he shared with his wife and in-laws. Of course, he consented to a search of the house for his children, and when they came up with no results, he agreed to follow the police back to the police department to be questioned. They arrived shortly after 9.30 in the evening, and there he was questioned from then to 1 o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. Yeah, but the reason why he, uh, he was questioned so long was because his story just kept changing. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. You can't make two lives intertwine. No. Now, during his questioning, Peter said that he had spoken to Catherine earlier in the week just to check in on her to see how she was doing. But this statement contradicted an earlier statement that he had made about him not being in touch with her for about at least the last six months. What? Yep. He also denied that he had been to her apartment during that time, which just so happened to contradict an eyewitness report of him leaving Catherine's apartment that morning. When the officer suggested that he went to her apartment without getting out of his car and immediately left, he agreed with that statement and once again changed his story. So at this point, he was saying that he finished his shift at the base, and that's when he decided to drive to Lowell. Just random spur of the moment, like, oh, maybe I should just go check in on on her, whatever. So the thing is, this would have been around 4.30 a.m. on Saturday morning is what he said. That's when he said that he arrived. Or that's when he said that he left the Air Force Base and that he arrived at Catherine's around 6 a.m. This is after working a full shift, not getting any sleep. Or when he said that he got a little bit of sleep. Right. He said that Catherine was an early riser, so he figured that she would be up. And he thought that they could just, you know, have a cup of coffee together, even though he said that she did not know that he was heading to her apartment. When he arrived at the door, it was locked. And he said that no one answered when he knocked. So he just turned around and drove back to the base, 75 miles away. At no 6 a.m. At 6 a.m. After being up all night. After being up all night. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Now, he insists at no point whatsoever that morning was he ever in Catherine's apartment. And once again, the story changed a little later. So at this point, he admits that he was in the apartment earlier than 6 a.m., but this time he said that he had gone into the apartment, but he said that he had seen nothing, touched nothing, heard nothing, and left without seeing Catherine or their sons. And after several hours of questioning and the story just consistently changing, but no confession was made, he was placed under arrest, which, thank goodness. Yes. Now, Irene, our amazing friend and neighbor, on the other hand, had a different story than Peter's to tell. So she was able to say that, you know, I know who Peter is. I've previously met him. Like, she had met him at least one time before this entire thing happened. Mm -hmm. And she had gotten home shortly after midnight when she just so happened to see Peter's car parked on the street near the apartments. Irene said that she was accustomed to hearing Peter's late night comings and goings over time and the sound of his combat boots. Like, that's just something that kind of came became consistent over time was hearing those. In the early morning hours of Catherine's murder, Irene had woken up after hearing Peter walking around the apartment in his combat boots. I guess the walls were just that thin. Yeah. Around 6 a.m., I, I was telling my little sister earlier, 
I love nosy neighbors for <laughs> this fact. But she said around 6 a.m. she heard the back door slam. And when she looked out the window to see what was going on, she saw Peter putting something in the trunk of his car, look up at the apartment, and then drive away. So she was able to establish that, yes, I've met this man previously, and I know that this was him. Right. Now, at this time, I don't know how they got it, but there was information given to the police that Peter had returned to base the morning after the murders. And so we're going, they arrest him around 1 a.m. that technically next morning. Mm -hmm. And at approximately 2 a.m., they received oral authorization from Lieutenant Colonel Paul Worcester to check Peter's or to search Peter's rooms for the children. Master Sergeant Wayne Raimondo, Raimondo oversaw the military personnel that were involved in the search on the base, while State Trooper James Plath oversaw the state police. The children weren't found in his rooms, but they did see a dirty diaper, empty yogurt containers, and Peter's wet and sandy army fatigues. So all of those items, along with the digging tool that they had seen in plain view of Peter's car, led them to believe that the boys could still be alive, but they were just hidden somewhere on base. Mm -hmm. Around 4 a.m., the state police requested uh, that the search expand to the entire area of the base, and Sergeant Raimondo was able to obtain oral authorization from the base installation commander, Colonel Shriver. While the police were mobilizing... Uh, for an expanded search of the area, Sergeant John Stowe and his superior, Sergeant Richard MacDonald, were talking about how they hoped that the allegations were a mistake. Like, both men had worked with Peter, and Sergeant MacDonald had actually considered him a friend. Right. Well, in this life, I mean, he's a, he's a decent guy. He's a decent married man. Yeah. I mean, he's, like, top of the line, like, wonderful um, mm -hmm. technical sergeant everything like that. Sergeant Stowe had mentioned that the last time that he worked with Peter, he had told him that he was storing ammunition in his gear locker in building 868 off of Outer Road. And for safety and environmental reasons, any ammunition that's left over from a training exercise or missions needs to be returned to the armory. That one would make sense. <laughs> yeah. And one officer had actually previously been charged with larceny of military property oh, for wow. storing blank ammunition in a storage locker. Like, oh, it's, like it's, it's serious. a hazard. Yes, it's very serious. So Sergeant McDonald reported Sergeant Stowe's information to Master Sergeant Raimondo, who is his superior. And Master Sergeant Raimondo immediately decided to search the locker because this information raised security concerns for the area. Mm -hmm. Like at this point, Master Sergeant Raimondo is not worried about the kids. He's worried about the safety of his troops. Right. There's un there's unattended, unaccounted for ammunition, supposedly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, he, he informed Trooper Plath, who was, you know, head of all of the troopers, of his plan. And in turn, Trooper Plath ordered Trooper Toby to accompany them. Once they got there, Sergeant McDonald had cut the lock off of Peter's locker, and whenever they opened it, they immediately noticed all the loose rounds of ammo in the top shelf. Also in the locker just so happened to be a crate down at the bottom. It held metal canisters that were used for storing ammo, and on top of it was a clear plastic bag that contained a knapsack. Because they were there about the ammo, 
about the ammo that was improperly stored, they moved the plastic bag with the knapsack inside of it out of the way so they could look into the crate. Sergeant McDonald had made a comment about how the knapsack was unusually heavy for its size, but that's not his concern right now. His concern mm. is the crate. Right. So after checking the crate, he put back the plastic bag and he commented once again about how heavy it was. So he did like a little search on the outside. Like he just packed the outside of the bag to see what mm-hmm. could have been in it. And out loud, he commented about how he thought that it might be a helmet and the butt of a gun. But he asked him, he's like, should I open it? So yeah, let, let's in the box, yes. dude. Let's open it. Trooper Toby had asked, you know, is there anything that the military could have issued him that would fit into that bag? And Sergeant McDonald replied with, it could be anything at this point. So they opened the knapsack and pulled open an inner plastic bag. And when they noticed what was in it, they all jumped back in horror. Benjamin and Ryan had been strangled, wrapped in plastic, and stuffed into that knapsack. Mm. So we're going to fast forward to the trial on February 5th, 1999. Peter was charged with three cra- three cases of first-degree murder, facing an automatic life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. Good. But Peter pled not guilty to all three charges of first-degree murder, but he was still held without bail because of how serious this crime was. Yeah. He did later admit that he strangled Catherine and their two sons at the apartment in Lowell, but his defense attorney, who was a former technical sergeant at the same Air Force base that Peter had worked at, had no conflict that, of interest there. No, 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 no. God. I mean, it was a big base. They probably never met, even though they held the same rank and whatever. So um, he had argued that even though he killed Catherine and their two young sons, it was all in the heat of the moment and should be considered manslaughter, which only has a maximum for 20 years, not first degree murder. Um, excuse me, you strangled your wife, well, your girlfriend, excuse me, and then murdered your children. Yeah, four years old and two months old. Two months old. So, according to Peter, this is what actually happened that night. This is what is in the court documents. So, he says, on Saturday, September 27, 1997, he arrived at Catherine's apartment in Lowell around 1 a.m., Peter and Catherine then had sex after he arrived, and he told Catherine that he wanted a paternity test done for both of their sons. He didn't believe that they were his, which, spoiler alert, they were. Yeah. Well, she was in a committed relationship with him. Oh, yeah. And it was at this time, after they had sex and after he asked for a paternity test, that he let her know that their relationship was over and she needed to stop contacting him. What? Yeah. And of course, this is all hearsay. This is all like according to Peter, which is the only person who was there is dead. Yeah. Which, you know, I do not believe this, but this is what the court documents say. Mm -hmm. So he said that they argued, but each time that the argument was going to a close and he thought that they were done, she would just become hysterical Mm -hmm. and the argument would start Mm -hmm. all over again. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, poor him, right? Oh, my head women being hysterical. <laughs> so, um, Peter said at one point that Catherine said that she, and this is a direct quote from him about what she said, um, she was going to handle it in her own way. She was going to see Robin the next day and that she was going to settle this and get him back in her own way. 
Yeah. She didn't even know about her. No, she didn't. <laughs> like, all she knew is that the man that she had been seeing for the last four, this was 97. So the past five years, and the man who was the father of her four-year-old and two-month-old mm-hmm. is just breaking up with her out of the blue. Like, that's right. all that she knows. Right. And that he doesn't believe that the kids are his. So he believed without a doubt that Catherine was going to reveal their relationship and the fact that he had two children to his wife, Robin. And please prepare yourself, guys, because this is going to be the biggest eye roll that you'll probably ever do. Okay. So he claimed without a doubt that this would be the end of his marriage. You know, his wife finding out that he has a a mistress and two children. So he claims that he snapped and went into what he called the zone where he reverted to his military training and eliminated anyone that he thought was a threat to him and his Shut marriage. Shut up. That's the <laughs> stupidest thing I have ever heard. Yeah. Well, even though it's stupid, while he was in the zone, he strangled Catherine and their two sons. Yeah. Like, uh, okay. So you're married to a military man. I <laughs> come from an entire military family. I've pissed my dad off a lot. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm 20, 26 years old. So surely over the years, there have been moments when he's wanted to like really discipline and he has never, ever had to strangle anyone <laughs> or anything yeah. to get his point across. Yeah. My parents met in the Navy. I'm married to a man who was in the Air Force. My mom didn't even like to spank me whenever I was being a heathen. No. My husband has never raised a hand at me. This and is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. So the zone. The zone he's referring to is him being a sick bastard. Exactly. And so the ruling was that he was convicted of all three counts of first degree murder. Like Good. without a doubt. Good. And uh, first degree murder in Massachusetts just so happens to carry an automatic sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. So he got three life sentences that day. And the Middlesex Superior Court judge, Robert Barton, had told Peter that he deserved a harsher punishment. And his exact words were, this defendant deserves no less than the death sentences he imposed on Catherine Rice and his own children. However, I do not have that authority. Oh, that gave me chill bumps. I know, me too. Like, mic drop. Jeez. Where, what, what about Robin in all of this? Like, was she even notified? Like, yeah, she was. She was absolutely devastated because she blindsided. Yeah, she she had no idea. No one did. Like, not even his best friends. Like, they say that no one had any idea that he was leading a double life or had kids. That's Although crazy. there were reports that he had bragged to some guys on base mm-hmm. that he had a wife and a mistress and the mistress had two kids by him and that it made him feel like the king. That's sick. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that is the um, crazy <laughs> twisted story about Peter and the zone. That's wild. That is yeah. wild. Well, I almost want to see like how far. So that what what year was his court? Uh, ninety nine is when he oh, was okay. sentenced. So that's a few years. I was gonna because for some reason I thought it was closer to the time that mine was kind of rolling out, but we're a few years apart. 
So I'm taking us to North Attleboro, Massachusetts. It is the jewelry capital of the world. Oh. <laughs> it really makes me wish that I was doing a case on like some badass jewelry heist or something, but I'm I'm really not. <laughs> yeah, kind of disappointed now. I know. Um, Attleboro was first um, colonized by the English in 1634. It grew fairly rapidly. Not it's not a very big area. Um, in 1747, North Attleboro became its own governing town. So that's where we are in our own separate city. Um, okay. As I mentioned, Attleboro became known for jewelry manufacturing in 1913. Um, the Attleboro area is not very diverse. It is 86.6% white, 4% Hispanic, 4% Asian, and only 3% black. Oh gosh. Yes. I'm a, it, am I figuring out where this is going already? Uh, I don't think so. I don't, I don't okay, think good. so. <laughs> good, good. I'm just trying to give you like a, an idea of where this is playing out. Okay. Um, crime is very low. It is 42% lower than the national average in, wow. in the U S today. There's a zoo and a fish hatchery. And other than that, not a whole lot. <laughs> so <laughs> it's literally like, like, out of a textbook, nothing happens here um, okay. until the case that I'm about to cover happened. So this case actually ends pretty recently in 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I say ends because it started like a decade before that. And I think there's a lot more to it than what actually ended. Okay. So like I said, I'm actually going to take us a decade earlier to Gainesville, Florida. On September 30th. I know I've got a little state hopper for you. Yeah. I lived in Gainesville for six whole days. Did you, oh, six days? Yes. Well, I lived there because technically I had my own townhouse. I mm -hmm. had a job. So I literally yeah. lived there for six days. That's Hey, you know. Um, so yes, Gainesville, Florida on September 30th of 2007. Around 2.20 a.m., Randall Carson, Justin Glass, and Corey Smith were on their way home from a club called The Venue. And according to the Gainesville Police records, they were driving a 1997 war, war, white Ford Crown Vic. So like an old cop car. Yeah. And while they were sitting at a, a red light, a Chevy Tahoe pulled up next to them. Two men got out of the Tahoe and fired four or five shots into the passenger side of the vehicle. What? Yes. Um, Randall had been sitting in the back seat, so he did not suffer any injuries, but Justin Glass and Corey Smith were both hit. Justin was shot in the arm and Corey suffered a gunshot wound to the head. They were immediately rushed to the hospital and they both survived. Oh my gosh. Yes. But still, I mean, that's, that's a brutal attack. Yeah. Um, throughout this investigation, both Justin and Corey were questioned, but they did not go on record with many, if any, news stations. Like, I, I, I would imagine just the trauma, the physical trauma that they experienced. Um, a lot of the reports that I'm going to refer to come from Randall Case Carson. Um, now, even emotional trauma can alter eyewitness accounts. So I, I want everybody to take what he says with a grain of salt just for that, for that mm -hmm. instance. Um, Randall said that the man who fired the gun was, quote, a large, muscular Hawaiian or Hispanic man with lots of tattoos. Okay. 
Randall was able to identify the other man by name. um, And he knew immediately that it was Reggie Nelson, who was a University of Florida football player who had been drafted that same year by the Jacksonville Jaguars. I know this case. Yes. Whenever you said the guy's (laughs) names, I'm like, man, like those sound so familiar. Okay. Um, He also said there was a third man in that group that attacked them, but he was not able to identify him. Now, Reggie Nelson and his crew had gone out to the same club that night um, that these guys had come from, the venue, and the Gators had actually won a national championship in 2007. So just like any school in the SEC, the players were treated like gods and would not be missed if they were out in public. Mm -hmm. Um, Matthew and I lived in Tuscaloosa for a little while, and we went to a movie. Like We decided to go to a late show. Do you remember when Hardcore Henry came out? Do you remember that movie? Oh, my God. It was the most awful movie I've ever had to see. It was like a first-person account, and he wore like a GoPro the entire time, and he did – he blew shit up. It was awful. Terrible movie. But in the theater, Julio Jones sat in front of us. So in the off chance that Julio Jones ever listens to our podcast, hey, (laughs) we saw Hardcore Henry together. Um, where I'm going with this is that it was very unlikely that Reggie would have been misidentified at the club. Oh yeah. Um, and so when Randall Carson claimed that he was one of the attackers along with his very close friend and fellow teammate, Aaron Hernandez, police immediately brought them in for questioning. Spoiler alert here. This story (laughs) is not about Reggie Nelson. No, it is not. Um, Reggie went on to play in the league as a safety for the Jaguars, the Bengals, and the Raiders, and he did retire. I, all, I'm just going to put this out here. All of my football information does not come from just my knowledge. Um, my husband <laughs> is a, works in this. This is what he does. So um, all of this information comes from Matt Nine with the Fantasy Scouts. Just throwing his little plug out there. <laughs> I love how in this episode we both use our husband's knowledge. <laughs> I was like, I was getting so frustrated trying to Google this stuff, and I'm like, I know he knows, so I'm just texting him all day. I'm like, What year did this happen? What happened here? <laughs> yes. Um, so Aaron Joseph Hernandez was born on November sixth, nineteen eighty nine, in Bristol, Connecticut. His parents, Dennis and Terry Hernandez, did not provide the most stable and loving childhood home for him um, or his older brother, Jonathan. Slight trigger warning here. um, There is talk of abuse. So Dennis was an alcoholic and wanted literally nothing more than to live vicariously through his athletically gifted sons. Um, The pressure put on these boys at an early age was outrageous. Like, I am all for, you know... Obviously, Matthew and I are a athletic household. Like, I have lived, (laughs) ate, lived, and breathed volleyball my entire life. Matthew is a huge football fan. So, I have no doubt that we are going to expose our kids to that. But I am not going to force them into anything. No. And then you have me over here saying, oh, my my son is going to be a D1 after. (laughs) Right. But if he decides that he doesn't want to be, that's where it ends, you know? Yeah. Um, And even when the boys did well or won in games, even as little kids, it just was not enough for their dad. Um, Dennis was violently abusive towards them both and their mother. He would beat the boys so regularly to the point where coaches and teammates would visibly see the bruises even into high school. Yeah. 
Aaron's older brother, Jonathan, said at one point he ran for the phone to call the police for help. And their father said to him, go ahead, call them. As he handed him the phone and then said, I'm going to beat you even harder, you and your brother. And they're going to have to pull me off of you when they knock down the door. Wow. Yeah. It's also reported and was confirmed by Jonathan that Aaron had been forced to perform oral sex on an older boy. It was not his father. Um, they didn't name this older boy um, for years, starting as early as six years old. That's so disgusting. Yeah. In 2006, when Aaron was around 17, Dennis died due to complications after a routine hernia repair. Oh, and I know, and but it actually had kind of an adverse effect on Aaron, on Aaron because even though he was so emotionally and physically abusive, he it was still his dad, so yeah. he had kind of like a very unhealthy attachment. Um, and it heavily impacted him after his death. So he got into drugs. He still excelled athletically and was even named All American after catching twenty four touchdowns that year. Mm-hmm. Um, he only continued to act out in high school and it didn't help any that not even like a full year later, his mom, Terry started having an affair with his cousin's husband. So this would have been her niece's husband by marriage. That's yes. <laughs> um, not long after finding out about the affair, Aaron had his first very serious injury during a game he was hit by an opposing player and the way he was hit actually knocked him out cold and emts were called and he was immediately taken in today hits like this are taken way more seriously because there have actually been links to um head traumas and something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy and or cte and this can significantly alter the human brain at a fundamental level so like There's special equipment in helmets now that kind of um, tracks this and there's a way different concussion protocol and things like that. So, but at this time that wasn't a thing. In January of 2007, Aaron graduated high school early to start playing football at the university of Florida as a tight end. Aaron continued smoking weed, even though it threatened his college career head coach urban Meyer threatened multiple times to kick him off the team. But Aaron had some good guys watching out for him. Um, NFL quarterback Tim Tebow actually mm-hmm. vouched for him numerous times um, throughout his college antics and tried to keep him out of trouble as best he could. Um, and he would go on multiple times to say, like, he would tell Urban not to kick him off the team. In April of that same year, Aaron and Tim were at a bar called The Swamp. When Aaron, uh, by the way, I love these names of all these bars. <laughs> And clubs that we're going to (laughs) visit. But Aaron got into a verbal altercation with one of the bartenders about his unpaid tab, which was literally $12. And I know. And so Tim Tebow tried to deescalate the situation, but Aaron Hernandez ended up punching the bartender in the side of the head and ruptured his eardrum. Holy crap. Yeah. So this was not just some little like hit like that's a sucker punch (laughs) yes um aaron was arrested and tim tebow actually had to call urban meyer the head coach to help resolve the situation and i guess i didn't know this but i guess like college teams even will have they have lawyers for this exact reason 
And so University of Football or a football University of Florida's um, team was able to get the charges dropped. Yep. So that brings us to September 30th of 2007, which we've already talked about. Reggie Nelson and Aaron Hernandez were seen together at the venue. And what I haven't mentioned is Aaron's physical appearance. So if you don't know who Aaron Hernandez is, um, remember, Randall said the man who survived, or they all survived, but the man who goes on record said that the man who fired the gun was, quote, a large, muscular Hawaiian or Hispanic man with lots of tattoos. Mm-hmm. Aaron Hernandez is a six foot one, very muscular football player mm-hmm. covered in visible tattoos, covered in them. He had chest pieces. He had one across his collarbones. He had a neck tat. Um, and then full sleeves on both arms. So not something you're going to miss. Um, he is also, as Randall described, a Hispanic man. Mm-hmm. He was actually um, of Puerto Rican descent. During the investigation, Randall actually picked Aaron out of a police lineup and identified him as the shooter in their attack. Not long after this, the case was reassigned to Detective Tom Mullins, who determined Aaron was not the shooter. Just wasn't him. Of course it wasn't. Nope. The charges were dropped because Randall Carson actually would end up recanting his eyewitness account out of the blue. Like, just decided he wasn't, it wasn't Aaron Hernandez. Couldn't have been him. Yeah. No. Um, and he said that he never saw Aaron shoot his friends, but, quote, thought it might have been him because they had all had an exchange that earlier that night at the club. In 2009... Aaron Hernandez took his infamous Glock selfie. I don't know if you've seen that, but I, <laughs> um, he's literally in a mirror holding a black Glock 21. And he decides that that's what he's going to post on online. And this is after he also posted pictures of him holding up gang signs. So not like a really great track record, but you know, um, by 2010. Yeah. Did you look <laughs> it up? <laughs> yeah. It's uh-huh. like a mirror selfie. Your your phone in one hand, and then the other is just like literally a big ass it gun. To yeah, where you could like see the whole thing. Yeah, like and not pointing and, it or anything. It's just like holding it up, pointed towards no. the ceiling. And there's a magazine in it. So I mean, there's no way that you can tell if the magazine is loaded, but there's a magazine in the gun. And this so. dumbass has his finger on the trigger. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Was he not taught anything about gun safety? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> oh my gosh, I never noticed that. So by 2010, after contributing to two national championships in 2007 and 2009, um, he also received the John Mackey Award as the nation's best collegiate tight end. Um, He was he then announced that he would be entering the NFL draft at the end of this his junior year in college at only 20 years old. Mm -hmm. April 23rd, 2010, Aaron was drafted to the New England Patriots. We all know them, right? Hey, did you see my sweater that I'm wearing? <laughs> yeah, national championship. <laughs> 2009. <laughs> all right, let's see. Sorry. You're, you're good. <laughs> um, right out of the gate, he was a force on the team, but he never could quite give up his antics. Um, he continued using drugs and getting in altercations both on and off the field. In college, he had, remember, Tim Tebow there to try and keep him in line. 
now he was a young kid making a shit ton of money in the NFL and he felt like he was in on a stick. Mm-hmm. Luckily, though, he did have quarterback Tom Brady, um, who was a close friend of Tim Tebow's or is a close friend of Tim Tebow's, um, who felt like he needed to take it upon himself to bring Aaron under his wing. And it seemed like maybe it was working. Um, there were a couple of years where he didn't really seem to get in trouble. That only lasted until July 16th of 2012, when 29-year-old Daniel Diabro and 28-year-old Safiro Furtado were found shot dead in their car in what was an apparent drive-by shooting. According to the two men who survived the attack, Aquilina Freire and Rachides Sanchez, the four of them were headed to get something to eat after leaving a club. Um, they stopped at a stoplight when a silver SUV pulled up next to them and the driver said, what's up, N-words. So that's not something that I'm going to say verbatim, um, but that was what the driver said. Yeah, you get the gist. Yes. Um, following that, that statement, um, the driver open fired on the vehicle. Victims, Daniel and Safiro, had grown up together. Um, they went to school together and then joined the military together after high school. The group had been to the Cure Lounge in Boston earlier that night where there happens to be video evidence proving that Aaron Hernandez had been to the same club with his friend and drug dealer, Alexander Brady Bradley. Shocking. Yeah. I'm skipping ahead a little bit in our timeline just for a second because I want to go into a little bit of detail on the trial for this case. Um So at the trial, it was revealed through Alexander Bradley's testimony that a member of the group had bumped into Aaron in the club, causing him to spill his drink, which led to a verbal altercation between them. And in the couple of months leading up to this event, Aaron had been noted by multiple people making statements about how other people had been testing him or disrespecting him in one way or another. Mm-hmm. So when they got into this verbal altercation in the club, Alexander Bradley said that he had to physically remove Aaron from the club because he was being so aggressive about the spilled drink. So the prosecution claimed that this altercation was viewed by Aaron as being another form of disrespect and he just wasn't going to have it, which totally aligned with what Bradley had been saying. Mm-hmm. Aaron, of course, pled not guilty. Um but because of his history in drug dealing and the, um, wow, because of Alexander's history in drug dealing, the defense claimed this was not the result of an altercation in the club and was actually a drug deal gone wrong. And the actual killer was Alexander Bradley, which seems ever so convenient that the person that they're now trying to blame happens to be testifying against their client. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Bradley went on to testify that after he removed Aaron from the bar, Aaron saw the men leave and followed them, pulled up next to them, and fired five rounds into the vehicle. He said that he actually kept firing, and the gun clicked three more times before he realized that it had run out of ammo. Wow. Yeah. So now we are back on our timeline. Um, Let's talk about Alexander Bradley for a moment. So these two are friends, like best friends. And... Technically, Bradley would have been an accessory to murder, especially because he didn't tell anyone after it happened. So you might be wondering, 
What happened between these two that would lead him to then go on the stand to testify against his best friend? What happened between these two? Please tell me. (laughs) Well, up until this attack in 2012, Bradley had continuously supplied Aaron with weed, and they had been hanging out together as friends and going to parties together since college. Um, So this was not like a new friendship. After the attack in Boston, their relationship changed, which rightfully so. Mm -hmm. Um, By this time, so had Aaron's life. He was a dad and a fiancé now. His fiancé, Shanna Jenkins, had given birth to their daughter on November 6th, just a few months after the 2012 attack, which is his birthday, too. (laughs) Um, Aaron started getting more and more paranoid that Bradley was going to turn him in or come for him himself. And they started exchanging death threats between the two of them. Aaron then installed a top-of-the-line surveillance system in and around his home. And he bought an armored car and several more guns. Okay, I understand, like, the security (laughs) system because, I mean, you're playing in the NFL at this point. Right. But an armored car? (laughs) like, Or, wait, wasn't it, like, a big SUV or something? So, like... Yep, it was a big old SUV. Oh, my gosh. An armored vehicle and... Yeah. No. He even went as far as to ask the Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick, if he could be transferred to a team on the West Coast because he was afraid that Bradley would show up and kill him while he was on the field because he would have his guard down. Wow. So he is like hella paranoid at this point. Yeah. August 27th, 2012, almost exactly one month later, Hernandez signed a five-year extension with the Patriots, which would contract him to $40 million. Just a just a oh. humble 40 mil. Yeah, just, I mean, just a little. It's a little bit of money, not much. In February of 2013, things escalated very quickly between the two. Um, the aggravation between them had been going on for so long now, and Aaron needed to end it, or he felt like he needed to end it. So, according to Bradley, he, he Bradley, had fallen asleep in his car and woke up to Aaron holding a gun to his face. Aaron then shot him in the head and left him to die in the parking lot. Yeah. Bradley obviously lived because he testified on the stand, Mm -hmm. but he lost his right eye and said on the stand that he didn't tell police who it was because he wanted to end Aaron's life himself. I mean, you you can't blame the guy. (laughs) No. It just, yeah. It just, just really shows like how toxic that whole friendship was. Yeah. Best of friends. Um, on June 17th, 2013, the body of Odin Lloyd was found in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. So Odin Leonardo John Lloyd was born on November 14th, 1985 on the island of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And he lived a few years in Antigua, which is where I went on my honeymoon, nice. um, <laughs> before he moved to Dorchester, Massachusetts with his family. Dorchester is a rough area, not anything like Attleboro. Um, Violent crimes here are 93% higher than the national average. Holy crap. So you went from like 40 or 60% under to holy cow. Right. Um, Odin knew his only way out of that lifestyle was going to be football, and he loved football. Um, He played as a linebacker at John D. O'Brien School of Mathematics and Science, where their team won multiple championships. Um, Like I said, he loved the sport. Mm -hmm. His defensive coach, Mike Branch, who was actually a 
um, Dorchester probation officer as well, said his talent was off the charts, and it was his personal goal as his coach to get him out of the hood and into college. Oh, I know. So sweet. I know. Unfortunately, Odin was much more interested in girls, and his grades started to show that. Uh, uh, they slipped dramatically. No, <laughs> we're not. We're really not. <laughs> Stay in school. <laughs> Um, and the goal of college was just no longer an option for him. Mm. It wasn't long before he started getting into trouble with the law. He was arrested in both 2008 and 2010, but both of those cases were dismissed. Even with the poor grades and recklessness, he was accepted to Delaware State University and he planned to attend. Um, unfortunately though, his, for whatever reason, his financial aid fell through. And so he had to drop out. Oh, he started working for a large Massachusetts power company, which would relocate him to Connecticut, where he met and married, oh, excuse me, met and started dating Shania Jenkins. He hadn't completely given up on football either. He was playing for a semi-pro team in the New England Football League called the Bandits. And knowing Shania was his person, their relationship grew and he became an easy part of the Jenkins family. Um, a few years later, while attending a Jenkins family gathering, Shania's sister, Shayana, brought her new fiancé, Aaron Hernandez. Odin and Aaron became effortless friends right away, even though they practically lived completely opposite lives. Um, Odin made enough money to get by and support his family. Like, he was not interested in flashy things, fancy cars. He just, he just didn't care about those things. Aaron, on the other hand, was at this time living in a very modest $1.3 million mansion. Oh, man, that's, yeah, that's no. not much. That's no, just little. Tiny. <laughs> um, Odin's teammates on the Bandits said he never once bragged about being practically family with an NFL star and never acted like it made him better than anyone else. He was just a humble guy. That's so sweet. On the night of June 14th, Aaron and Odin went out to a club in Boston called Rumor. And while at the club, Odin started innocently chatting with a couple of guys that Aaron had gotten into fights with in the past, not knowing that Aaron had gotten into fights with them in the past. I mean, it was just guys at the club. Yeah. Aaron saw this as a huge sign of disrespect, and he would not, would not be betrayed by Odin. Two days later, Aaron texted two of his friends from Connecticut and said, you can't trust anyone anymore. They being his confidants, mm -hmm. um, drove to his home to help him take care of Odin's betrayal. Around 2.30 a.m., they, pick, they picked Odin up from his home, and even though his family would never see him alive again, they believe he sensed something was wrong because he actually texted his sister shortly after he'd been picked up. While Aaron and his friends, Carlos Ortiz and Ernest Wallace, drove around, the area, they discussed the night he chatted it up with Aaron's enemies at the club. This is when Odin texts his sister asking, he sent three messages. First, he asked, did you see who I'm with? I don't have her reply, but his following message was short and it's just said NFL. His final message to his sister, to anyone, was just so you know. Gosh. Between 3.23 and 3.27 a.m., employees at a nearby industrial park heard gunfire. This industrial park was less than one mile from a certain $1.3 million mansion that I mentioned mm -hmm. and would be where Odin's body was found. 
The investigation found Odin's phone smashed in five shell casings from a 45 caliber gun, also known as a Glock 21. Mm-hmm. Um, the autopsy confirmed Odin had suffered five gunshot wounds to his back and side. From here on, things move fairly quickly. So I'll try not to fly that through them too fast, but it is kind of like a, it's a little choppy, <laughs> but um, Aaron was a suspect right away and was arrested nine days later on June 26, 2013. He was led from his home in handcuffs, which he attempted to hide from the media with a t-shirt. He was charged with first degree murder. Less than two hours later, that $40 million contract with the Patriots terminated. He was released from the team and all of his corporate sponsorships were also dropped immediately. On September 6, 2013, he pled not guilty to the murder of Odin Lloyd, even though he was the last person to see him alive, and even though his own surveillance footage captured pictures of him holding a gun in his home with Carlos Ortiz and Ernest Wallace. Mm -hmm. May 15, 2014, Aaron was finally indicted for the double murder of Diabro and Furtado back in 2012. He pled not guilty, of course. Um, Within the same month, he also was faced with an assault charge for beating up another inmate. On January 9th, 2015, there was finally a trial for the murder of Odin Lloyd. And on April 15th, 2015, Aaron Hernandez was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to that mandatory life sentence you mentioned Mm -hmm. um, without the possibility of parole. Close to two years later, on February 14th, which is coming right up (laughs) of 2017, he went on trial for the double homicide in 2012, and he was acquitted for this crime on April 14th. Five days later, so April 19th, 2017, Aaron Hernandez was found hanging by a bedsheet in his cell at Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center and pronounced dead at the age of 27. So young. So young. But... Everything in his life was so young. I mean, he graduated high school early. He skipped his senior year of college to join the NFL. Everything was on an expedited timeline for him. Um, there was a postmortem autopsy conducted, and Dr. Ann McKee, who was a neuropathologist who specializes in that disease I mentioned at the very beginning, that CTE, um, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, said she had never seen brain damage to the extent of his in any athlete younger than 46. Yeah. So that's 20 years his senior. Um, There are a few theories as to Aaron's motive to kill Odin. Um, So the primary theory being that the years of brain damage beginning with his father's abuse had altered his behavior to the point where he lived in a state of constant paranoia and felt anything he did not agree with was a sign of disrespect. So um, as I've mentioned, Odin talking to those guys that he'd been in a fight with was disrespectful and he felt betrayed. Now, the other theory is that, excuse me. The other theory is that since Aaron was in middle school, there had been speculation that he had been gay or at least bisexual. Um, He was supposedly involved in a homosexual relationship in high school as well as college, but adulthood is unknown. He was engaged to um, Shayana, so possibly bi. Um, So it is the theory is that maybe Odin had caught on to this or saw something at the club that Aaron hadn't wanted him to see. 
the couple's daughter that they had in 2012 is ne- is 10 now. Um, oh I'm gosh. not going to advertise her name since she's still a little girl, but mm-hmm. she's adorable. Um, Shayana is actually an Instagram influencer and reality TV personality. Oh. And she didn't wait very long to get back into the dating game. Um, and who she chose to date maybe says a little bit about what she wants in life. Um, Because she did have another baby with another NFL player named Dino Dino Gilmetti in 2018. So, like, that's, like, less than a year after her previous fiancé committed suicide after being charged with murder. So, that timeline is just a little bit sped up for her, too. Um, But the couple does plan to get married in the near future. They're still together today in 2022. Um, in 2020, Netflix released a docu-series called Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez. And it really goes into a lot of detail on the effects of CTE that, that it had on him. It how it's very likely the cause of this tumultuous life he lived. Um, mm-hmm. The other two guys that were involved did face charges as well. Um, I did not, I'm not actually write down what those were. I know they were dropped down from first degree, though. And it's crazy to me, though, that, like, it's obvious he's tied to all of these crimes, right? Yeah. And he evaded the law for so long. And one of the things that I actually asked Matt to look at, like, his performance was exceptional during this oh, time. Yeah. Like, in the NFL. Like, so between 2007 and 2013, he's murdering people on the side and being one of the best tight ends in the league. So mm-hmm. kind of kind of that double life. Like you're yeah. talking about with yours. It's yeah, crazy. Without meaning to, we kind of merged everything. <laughs> yeah. It's just wild to me. But yes, that is that is Aaron Hernandez's story. So y'all should watch the docuseries on Netflix. It's I watched it is, part of it. It's pretty good. It's really good. Finish it yeah. if you haven't. I have not. Nick and I watched it together, I think after it first came out, because he was a huge fan mm-hmm. of his. Um, well, so many people were like so many people yeah. had no idea the crimes that he was tied to. So we have a missing person for you in Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah, so I found this news article in Massachusetts. And as of December 22nd of last year, 2021, there were a total of 102 missing children in Massachusetts. Oh, children? Children. Oh, my goodness. So we are going to go ahead and talk about the most recent, according to this article. Mm-hmm. Her name is, I don't know if it's pronounced Alexis or Alexius. Last name, I'm assuming, is Dubois. It's E-L-E-X-I-O-U-S-D-U-B-O-I-S. Yeah, I think you got that. Okay, so Alexius Dubois. She's missing from Brockton, Massachusetts. Her date of birth was is. July 23rd, 2004. She's 17 at this point in time. Uh, she's white with brown hair, green eyes, five foot three. And at the time of her disappearance, she was 130 pounds. Okay. So if you have any information about her, where she might be, please contact your local police department, 911 or 1-800-843-5678. We shall. Everybody out there in Massachusetts. And we are headed to, we're packing our bags. Where we're going next? What's after Massachusetts? Michigan. Michigan. We're going to the Midwest. 
Very nice. <laughs> Back where I belong. Yes, me too. <laughs> I'm going to feel much more in my element. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, everybody, um, thanks for coming along to Massachusetts, and we will take you hopefully maybe to some warm weather in Michigan. Patreon. No, I'm getting there. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure y'all follow us on Patreon. We are Killer Country Podcast on Patreon. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Killer Country Podcast. That's where you'll find a lot of our pictures and a little blurb about what's going on in the state that we're in. We are also on Instagram. That is at Killer Country Podcast on Instagram. And you can also find us at, or you can email us at killercountrypodcast at gmail.com. That's where you can send us your campfire stories. You can send us case uh, recommendations, any missing persons in the area that you need us to cover, you'd like us to touch on, anything. Feel free. If you just want to say hi, hi, recommend (laughs) recommend girl names, recommend boy names. Yeah. We we want to get to know you people. We travel the whole world, the whole U.S. with you. We ought to get to know you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so just shoot us an email, killercountrypodcast at gmail.com. All right, everybody. We will see you in Michigan. Michigan. Bye, guys. <laughs>